0: Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 7. A great opportunity to gain full-time research experience without the need to worry about classwork is over the summer. In part 1, we're going to talk about finding summer research positions as an undergraduate. In part 2, I talk about some of my major breakthrough results for this week at Boys Town, including how I got to them and how I plan on interpreting these results. So without further ado, let's discuss. Many full-time summer research programs for undergraduates will require a couple of components for their application. Almost all of them will require a cover letter or an essay and two letters of recommendation. This style is very similar to college admissions, and as you may know from applying to college, the essays that you write and the letters of recommendation that you receive really make or break your application. To share some tips that I have for writing a cover letter, I wanted to provide to you one of my own cover letters that I wrote for a very competitive summer research program known as the Amgen Scholars Summer Research Program. This program sponsors only a handful of summer research students every year to study research in the fields of biotechnology and biomedicine at top prestigious universities around the world. For context, I applied to the AMGEN Scholars Program at the University of Tokyo, which accepts only 15 students worldwide, with over 1,000 applicants, meaning that it has less than a 2% acceptance rate. I was accepted into the lab of Dr. Bito Haruhiko, one of Japan's top neuroscience and neurochemistry researchers, who has published numerous highly impactful articles in top journals like Science. I'm going to share with you guys the cover letter that I sent to him that got me accepted into this program after just my first year, and I will be matriculating in this program in the summer of 2023. So here it goes. Dear Admissions Committee, Ever since Google's DeepMind's AlphaGo defeated World Go champion Lisa Dahl, I grew fascinated with computer science and idolized DeepMind's ambitious mission to design an artificial general intelligence, AGI, capable of making scientific discoveries. During my internship at Cisco, I discovered the most intriguing challenge for computers to tackle, understanding the human brain. After graduation, I'm aiming to pursue a PhD in the field of computational neuroscience and become a research scientist in research labs such as the NIH, DMIND, etc. My research goal is to understand exactly how both healthy and damaged brains process information, advancing our efforts to curing brain diseases. Now, as a first-year computer science student at Vanderbilt University, I've taken on various computational neuroscience research projects. As a research assistant in the Neuroimaging and Brain Dynamics Lab, as well as the Medical Image Analysis and Statistical Interpretation Lab, I'm interested in Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging (fMRI) and Diffusion Magnetic Resonance Imaging DMRI. FMRI analyzes brain activity by measuring changes in blood-oxygenation-level-dependent signals However, breathing and heart rate also affect bolt signals, obscuring fMRI from accurately detecting neural activity. In my research, I'm fitting computational models to quantify the effects of physiology in bolt signals and pinpointing differences in model parameters for older individuals to detect Alzheimer's biomarkers. In contrast, DMRI analyzes brain structure by measuring how well water diffuses among certain brain tissue. Due to the physics of DMRI, diffusion-weighted images are distorted, which initially leads to inaccurate readings. My research involves designing deep learning pipelines that correct diffusion weight in images so that researchers can accurately analyze them. By researching alongside Dr. Bito Harhiko, I aim to take on image analysis project to analyze how neural circuits operate in the cerebral cortex when the brain processes new information. Dr. Bito's research fascinates me because he combines imaging techniques such as two-photon microscopy as well as image segmentation algorithms to visualize individual neurons that are activated after a certain stimulus. In Dr. Bito's lab, I seek to learn more about these high resolution neuroimaging methods. Afterwards, I want to analyze whole brain images using machine learning graph analysis algorithms to detect neurological biomarkers that are activated during memory recollection. Not only does this research have tremendous prevalence in my life as a university student, but it can also reveal how damaged brains can restrict learning bringing us one step closer to finding solutions for dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases. By combining interdisciplinary methods in neuroscience, bioengineering, and computer science, I hope to gain a better understanding on how different neural circuits interact and operate to give function to the entire brain. So, this was the cover letter that I sent the Amgen Scholars Program. Clearly at this time, I didn't have that much research experience relative to my competition, However, I think the way that I framed and wrote about my research experience and really tied it in with my future PI Dr. Pito's research experience really made me a compelling applicant. But overall, I want to share just one general tip for how to really perfect a cover letter that you're sending to a research position. Your cover letter will need three parts. One, you need to talk about your interests. Two, you need to talk about their research interests And three, you need to talk about why your research interests blend with their research interests. So let's start with the first part. Talk about your research interests. As you heard from my cover letter, I very clearly mentioned from the beginning of the essay that my research interests are, quote, to understand exactly how both healthy and damaged human brains process information, advancing our efforts to curing brain diseases. In the next part, I go on to To elaborate more on this research interest talking about how i'm currently working on fmri and how physiology impacts fmri and specifically i'm designing algorithms to to determine how these physiological impacts on bold change when someone ages and how that can reveal alzheimer's biomarkers i'm very specific in talking about the research efforts that i've done in this past to advance my own research interests and understanding how human brains process information. In your cover letter, you also want to be very specific. You want to talk exactly about the techniques that you used in the past, maybe some of the results that you found, or some of the conferences that you went to that specifically tie in with your research interests. Next is talking about their interests. And I think this is probably the most underrated part of someone's essay. A lot of the cover letters that I've looked at for my peers in the past really only talk about my peers' own interests, but it doesn't necessarily talk about the interests of the lab that they are applying to. And I believe that this is slightly a flawed approach. If you only talk about your own interests, but you don't at all elaborate on the interests of the PI whose lab you're applying to, then they have really no incentive to accept you in the first place. They only know your own interests, but they don't necessarily know that you would find their research interesting. And at the end of the day, the PI is looking for someone who is going to contribute to their lab, someone who's willing to contribute to their lab. And if you don't explicitly mention why you find their research to be interesting, then they have no reason to believe that you're gonna be willing to contribute to their lab. They only know that you're a qualified candidate, that you've done a lot of research, but they don't know that you're actually interested in their research. And that's why I spend a lot of my cover letter talking exactly about why Bito Haruhiko's research interests are also interesting to me. I talk about some of his research interests, such as these imaging techniques that he's using, like two photon microscopy, these image segmentation algorithms that he's using to visualize individual neurons and how that ties with my interest in computer science and artificial intelligence algorithms. I talk about why his research interests in understanding how the brain processes new information also interests me because that's very similar to what my research interests are. So you really need to go in depth about your PI's research interests as well. This is so underrated and what a lot of people actually don't really focus their cover letter on. A lot of times in the past, I've read cover letters and they have 95% of the cover letter talking about their interests. And maybe as a final thought in their last paragraph, they mention, I believe this PI's research interest is really interesting and I would be willing to work in their lab. Something like that. That's not nearly enough. You need to be specific about what they're interested in as well. And the final aspect of this cover letter that's also equally as important as the other two is talking about why your research interests aligns with their research interests. I believe this is probably the most important part, actually, of the cover letter because this really demonstrates why you would be willing to work in their lab. So first, you elaborate on why you're qualified as a researcher. Then you elaborate on that you understand their research. But then finally, you have to tie in why your research interests would really fit in with theirs. In my cover letter that I sent to Amgen, I mentioned specifically that I'm interested in studying memory recollection with Dr. Bito because not only does it have a tremendous prevalence on my life as a university student who constantly has to learn new information, but also his research interests align with mine Because I want to learn how damaged brains are restricted when it comes to learning. And that brings us one step closer to finding solutions for dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases. And I talk about finding these solutions for neurodegenerative diseases as one of my primary research interests in the very first paragraph. But moreover, I also talk about how his interest in neuroscience, they align with mine, but also his interest in these algorithms that he's using, these imaging algorithms that he's using. That aligns with my interest as well with computer science. So not only do I talk about how his research interests on a very broad level align with mine, but also the imaging techniques and the specific research techniques that he uses, those align with mine as well. He uses imaging techniques, which I'm interested in. He uses algorithmic techniques I'm also interested in. And on the broader level, his research interests in finding how the brain processes information aligns with mine as well. And really, this three-level approach to identifying how his research interests align with mine, I think made me a really compelling applicant for his lab. So that's writing a cover letter. You have to remember those three components. First, talk about your research interests. Then, talk about their research interests. And finally, talk about why your research interests match with theirs. So that's the cover letter. That's the hardest part, in my opinion. The next part is just teacher recommendations. And for this, the advice is pretty simple. You want to really get close with a few professors whose research and whose interests really align with yours, who you feel like you connect with, and who you're doing well in their class. Of course, this means going to their office hours, this means participating in classes. This means that if the professor who you're wanting to ask the recommendation from is your research PI, then you continually update your research PI and do meaningful work in their lab. However, I want you to keep in mind that it is not absolutely mandatory to ask a faculty member. For my Amgen application, I actually asked one of the, fa- one of the staff at Vanderbilt, who's not a professor. He was my director for my media position as a podcaster, and he overlooked a lot of my um, podcast production. So he was not a professor. He didn't necessarily have any close connections with my scientific research, but he understood my work ethic and my drive. And he also gradually saw my improvement as a podcaster and the effort that I put in to really improve my podcasting skills. So just keep in mind that you don't necessarily have to ask a professor. It's probably best that you do so, but as long as you can keep in contact with someone that understands your general work ethic, that's fine too. A lot of these science summer research programs will ask for two letters of recommendation. And what I strongly recommend is that one of the recommenders is either your research PI or a science professor that knows about your capabilities in science. But the second letter of rec doesn't necessarily have to come from a professor. In my case, it didn't. It came from the director of my media efforts. But the general tips still apply. You want to be really close with the recommender. You don't want to just be a student in the class, but you don't know the recommender on a more personal level. You really want to connect with them, participate, get to know them, and for them to know how you work and what you're capable of. So those are my general tips for applying to summer research programs. Create a compelling cover letter that really demonstrates why your research interests align with the research interests of the professor whose lab you're applying to. And find a few recommenders who can really speak closely about what you bring to the table and what you're capable of. You're listening to part two of the lab life podcast where i discuss my weekly research updates at the Boycetown national research hospital institute for human neuroscience now this week i did a lot and there were a lot of really interesting findings that i still need to interpret but let's start out with what i did at the first part of the week at first i continued with my whole brain anovas now i talked a little bit about this last time but just as a brief recap A whole-brain ANOVA means that I go voxel by voxel in the brain, and conduct an ANOVA test, which is essentially a significance test between three or more groups. In my case, my groups are TDCS on the left parietal lobe, TDCS on the right parietal lobe, and sham. So I did these whole-brain ANOVAs with some alpha activity in the maintenance part of the working memory task, as well as some theta activity in the encoding part of the working memory task. So just a recap of what all this means: the working memory task has three different parts. The encoding, which is the first part, which is where we see our image and we're trying to best remember that image in our head. The maintenance, where we don't actually see that image and we're trying to play it over and over and over in our head to try to like fix it in our memory. And the retrieval phase, which is where we are tested essentially. Normally, we look at a lot of the alpha responses because that's typically associated with working memory. However, there is literature in the past that mentions that theta is also involved and that theta can have a high impact on top-down executive function, which is essentially our brain devoting resources to try to encode that memory. So for this week, I did whole-brain anovas on alpha for maintenance and theta for encoding. The alpha and maintenance was specifically a 10 to 13 Hertz range, and the theta for encoding was specifically a three to five Hertz range. Now, some of my results were absolutely shocking. Last week, I also tried whole brain Novas on maintenance for alpha, but what I found did not make me very happy because I really only expected to see occipital activity for maintenance. I came in with this, with this, with this notion that In the maintenance we should really only see occipital alpha and that's because the occipital alpha is supposed to represent our brain suppressing other visual information so that we can very clearly remember what we just saw and not focus on other things. So I really only expected to see an occipital alpha but what I saw was a plethora of activity around the brain not only in occipital but Around the brain in general and I thought this plethora of activity was really just garbage It was just my beamforming algorithm picking up noise that wasn't relevant to the task But I really could not have been more wrong In fact, this other activity that we see in the maintenance really is the phonological loop in play Now if you remember the phonological loop is our brain playing the image that we saw over and over and over in our head, playing it in our ears, so that we really hear we we really hear those letters that we just saw. Right? And from reading the papers and really talking with some other graduate students in my lab, I've realized that the phonological looping is actually almost it's almost like it's stronger in the maintenance section. That's because in the maintenance, we don't actually see the letters on the screen anymore in the Sternberg working memory task. So therefore we have to devote extra resources to really playing those letters over and over and over in our head, so that we can really remember them during the retrieval section. And I initially thought that this, this didn't really happen in maintenance, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, well, in the maintenance section, it it makes sense. It makes sense that the phonological looping that's associated with the left lateralized regions of her brain, such as the supermarginal gyrus and the frontal cortex, those that activity should really be stronger. And when I looked at things from that point of view, I realized that my data was actually very clean. I actually picked up a lot of interesting facts. What my data told me is that in the maintenance section of the working memory task, we see much different activity in the left precentral gyrus and the right temporal gyrus. In the tDCS stimulation compared to sham, so I'll repeat that we see different activity. We see very different neural activity in the left precentral and the right temporal with tDCS compared to sham, and this is fascinating. The left precentral area is really close to what's known as Broca's area. And that's the area that really is associated with language production. And if you think about it, language production really is what drives that phonological loop. We're almost like producing language in our head via just playing sounds over and over in our ear, in our inner ear. And if you think about it, this makes sense, right? The, the more that we produce sounds in our head, the stronger the activation of that Broca's area is going to be. And we saw a very different activation in the left precentral area with TDCS versus sham and also with the right temporal area. This is also really interesting Because after talking with my PI we came to the conclusion that when certain left lateralized areas are damaged They almost recruit the right areas on the opposite side And the fact that there was a difference in the right temporal area might suggest that if there is some sort of Damage or lesion in the left area, we're recruiting more right area to help compensate for the left damage So this is also really interesting. I have to look into more depth into this, but I think the biggest takeaway from what I found this week with maintenance alpha is that just because the activity was not necessarily specific to the occipital area does not necessarily mean that it's bad data. In fact, this data is very, very interesting and really warrants some more investigation. This week, I also looked at some theta activity. And I also... Got some very surprising results that I didn't necessarily expect. A lot of the literature in the past that looks at theta really looks at how theta activity is associated with something known as an evoked response in the occipital cortex. And what this evoked response really means is that our, our, our occipital cortex is suddenly hit with the stimulus. And when it's hit with the stimulus, our, our primary visual cortex reacts in a very strong way. Right. Our primary visual visual cortex reacts in that the individual neurons there start firing because it starts seeing something. That's known as the evoked response. So with theta, I really expected it just to be the evoked response in the occipital cortex. But I saw a lot more than just evoked response in the occipital cortex. When doing the whole brain ANOVAs, I saw that activity between sham and TDCS was very different, not only in occipital, but also in the frontal cortex, in the cerebellum, and the supramarginal gyres, which is responsible for phonological looping. This is exciting. It's very fascinating because this can possibly mean that there's an evoked response not only in the occipital cortex, but also an evoked response in the areas that are responsible for the phonological looping of working memory. And I think this is a really new finding. It's very exciting. I don't necessarily know what this means, but I'll have to look more in depth. So both of these findings were very interesting. These findings, the maintenance activity that we saw and the theta activity that we saw in areas other than the occipital cortex, really hint to that there's a lot more to play in hand, a lot more of, a lot more brain activity that we really haven't been looking at in the past when it comes to working memory. Alright, these were the whole brain ANOVAs that I conducted. Next, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to see how activation in the form of pseudo t which is the metric that we're using to determine activation relative to baseline I wanted to correlate activation in pseudo t with both accuracy on the working memory task as well as response time and I really wanted to see you know how does accuracy how how is that correlated with how hard the brain works and What I found from this were numerous findings. Essentially what I did was I fit linear regressions where on the x-axis I have pseudo t and on the y-axis I have accuracy or reaction time. And I did these regressions on the previous areas that I talked about, the areas where I saw whole brain ANOVA differences. And there were numerous, numerous findings here, a lot of statistically significant results, but overall they were pretty hard to interpret because they were in such different areas but generally I found a pattern and that pattern is somewhat supported by the literature. And it goes that the harder the brain has to work or the higher the pseudo T, the lower the accuracy and the higher the response time. So repeat that, the harder the brain has to work means the higher the pseudo T, the lower the accuracy and the higher the reaction time. And this makes sense, right? If we have to work harder, then we have to devote more energy, more resources to something, then it makes sense that naturally we're probably not as good as we would be if we didn't have to devote that much energy into, into the task. This was the general finding that I saw throughout multiple brain areas. What was interesting is that it this finding was prevalent in certain brain areas, but in other brain areas there's no such significance. So I'll have to try to interpret why is it that in specific areas, when you work harder, you get less accurate and you get slower, but in other brain areas, this correlation doesn't necessarily hold. I still have to do more analysis into why that is. Another thing that I did was I fit these things called linear mixed effect models. And what that means is that I did regression specifically with left TDCS, pseudo-T inaccuracy reaction time with right TDCS, accuracy reaction time, as well as with sham. And these linear linear regressions are essentially just a line through a scatter plot, and these lines have different slopes. And through the linear mixed effect models, or LME, I wanted to see if the slopes between the left simulation, right simulation, and sham were different. And that would be interesting, because if they were different, let's say that with sham, the line was flat. It was just a horizontal line, but with with left and right stimulation, it was a very uh, positive slope. That would mean that with sham, as you increase pseudo-T, nothing happens with accuracy and reaction time. But with P3 and P4, or the left and right uh, stimulation, as you increase pseudo-T, as you increase activation, then uh, reaction time or reaction time increases, let's say. So that would basically mean that there would be, that, that would basically mean that when you stimulate the brain, it has to work harder in order to get higher accuracy. But when you don't stimulate the brain, then no such relationship holds. You don't necessarily have to work harder in order to get higher accuracy. And this would mean that when you stimulate the brain, then there's some sort of lesion that messes up the way that the brain devotes energy to these resources. So that would be really interesting if I found those differences. And I did find those differences, but in a lot of areas. And what's also really interesting is that some of these differences were only for, for example, right stimulation. And right stimulation affected the slope, but left and sham didn't. Or left affected the slope, but right and sham didn't. So I'd necessarily have to do a lot more interpretation on what these linear mixed effect model significant results mean, but they are there. Now I'm going to talk about some of the interesting research paths that I can take from here. So one thing that I found really interesting was that earlier we talked about the maintenance alpha activity. Well, I found that the maintenance alpha activity differences between the simulation and sham, those differences were much stronger in the maintenance than they were in encoding. And if this is indeed true, and if I can indeed find a way to tell this story, to spin this finding, then that could possibly mean that in the alpha band, parietal TDCS may only affect maintenance and not encoding. That would be really interesting. And moreover, I found that the theta responses in encoding were really strong too. So maybe this means that TDCS does affect the encoding phase, but only in the theta band and not in the alpha band. That would be really interesting, because then we can spin how TDCS, it affects different wavelengths at different points in the working memory task, which reveals exactly what those wavelengths mean and how they're important to the different areas of working memory. That would be fascinating. So really I have all these results right now and I have to try to tell a story with these results. So the next step is really creating this heat map that shows like all the tests that I've done and all the different brain regions that I've done and specifically which tests on which brain regions have been significant. And that way I can almost create a cluster of tests and brain regions that have really been significant, that have given me the most results And I can probe those results further. I can do more statistical tests on those results to see really what they mean. Another really interesting test that I'm going to be doing for this week is called functional connectivity. And basically what this means is that I'm going to identify a seed or a brain region of interest, and then I'm going to see how the responses of that brain region, how they correlate with the responses of other brain regions and specifically Does that correlation, which is the functional connectivity, is that correlation in brain activity between two brain regions different between the three conditions? If that functional connectivity difference does hold between the three regions, then that really can reveal and tell a lot about the other results that I've had specifically with pseudo T and accuracy response time. So I'm really excited to be conducting these tests and I believe that for next week, I'll have a much clearer story into what specific brain regions are really important for accuracy and reaction time, what specific brain regions are affected by TDCS, and why they are affected. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.